series to, to take a fresh look at something that we've become perhaps too familiar with. So it's almost as though let's approach the idea of ladies and gentlemen introducing God like we've, like we've not met him before, right? Well, sometimes we think we've met God before and so we tend to be a little bit too casual and not pay careful enough attention about who God really is. So if I were to throw out to you after 11 weeks the question and ask you to fill in the blank, uh, God is blank. No. What would you put in the blank? Yell at me. Kadash, that'd be, a great, that'd be a great word, good. Okay, because that would cover a bunch of words. And the one thing we don't want to do, and this is one thing I hope this series rescues us from, we don't want to just take our favorite word and fill it in. We don't want to just take the word that we've managed to understand and fill it in and then walk away from everything else the Bible says about God because there could be some awesome things that we would worship God about if we just understood them from God's perspective. And that's what we want to gain insight on. So many things we put in that blank. Today's topic probably would not have been one of them. I don't know if anybody here was thinking today, God is jealous. Did anybody, anybody think in that word this morning? I mean, God is love. God is holy. God is powerful. God is great. Those are on our list, but God is jealous? I don't know. Might not have made the list here. Look at Mr. J.I. Packer's thought. He says, were we imagining a God, then naturally we should ascribe to him only characteristics which we admired, or I might also add, which we understand. You know, if you don't understand an aspect of God, then, then it doesn't make your list. It, it needs to gain some insight. So we'd probably just be using things that we admired. He says, and jealousy would not enter the picture. Nobody would imagine a jealous God. But we are not making up an idea of God by drawing on our imagination. We are seeking instead to listen to the words of Holy Scripture in which God tells us the truth about himself. When God brought Israel out of Egypt to Sinai to give them his law and covenant, his jealousy was one of the first facts about himself which he taught them. And since this quality was, in a true sense, his name, right, actually in Exodus 34, where Moses prays and asks God to reveal his glory, and God does reveal his glory, and a few verses later, God tells him, my name is Jealous. You know, in an interesting way, God never, you know, help me here if I'm missing a verse, but God nowhere says, my name is Love. Now, I'm grateful that God is love, and we know the Bible tells us that God is love, but God never introduces himself that way. But he introduces himself as jealous. My name is jealous. It was clearly important that his people should understand it. All right, turn to Exodus 20. And remember the, the context where we are here. Exodus chapter 20 is the, the giving of the law. But interesting, it is, it is the meeting place of the people of Israel after they've come out of Egypt. And they've been in slavery for over 400 years in a pagan society which worshipped many gods, varieties of characteristics about these gods. 
they, they know of their God, but remember, they don't have a Bible, so it's not like they've been reading the Bible. They have some tradition, some thoughts that have been passed on to them. But in a very great way, this is the first time they're going to meet God at Mount Sinai. Now, Moses has already met God. Remember, Moses has been to Sinai before. He's turned aside from tending sheep, and he's met with God on the side of the mountain. And he's brought the people now to meet with God as well. And he spends the night before, the day before telling them, prepare, prepare yourselves. Now, I don't know what these guys were thinking about this meeting that was about to take place. I mean, can you imagine? You're about to meet with God as a people. What are you expecting? Well, the next morning, they awaken to a different appearance on Mount Sinai. It's as though there's this funnel of smoke ascending and descending onto this mountain and there's this this rumble that's taking place and there's peals of lightning and flashes and there's a noise that sounds like a tornado approaching almost almost it's it said it sounds like trumpets blowing if you're from St. Charles Parish you know what sirens sound like in the middle of the night the rest of you have no idea what we're talking about but it's it's downright spooky in the middle of the night to hear this I mean, I get religion right in that moment. It's like, oh, God, I got. I thank you, I'm saved. What the heck is that? You know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and it's a tornado warning is what it is. But there, there's something like that happening at the foot of Mount Sinai. And, you know, we find out later in the chapter that the, the light show, the fireworks and the noise was... God's intended entrance. It's how God chose to introduce himself. And he basically says, I, I did that so the fear of me would stay in you and you would not sin. So this is how God chooses to introduce him. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing God. And it wasn't like everybody kind of went, oh. You know, they all backed away. Remember, they backed away from the mountain. It was kind of like, uh, Moses, you talk to God and tell us what he says. Well, then God meets with Moses, and this is God's revelation, Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is an introduction. Now, remember, you and I grew up in a monotheistic culture, so we haven't been around the idea that God would have to tell us, which God are you? Well, I'm God, and you and I don't have another category. So, but these guys had multiple categories. So when God introduces himself, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, he's, he's clarifying for them. Hey, which one are you again? Now he's going to explain his character to them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, there is a functional reason in this passage. 
God says, here's the first command. Because I am God, you shall have no other gods before me. There shall be no other being that operates in the territory that belongs to me alone. I'm God. Nothing else is ever allowed there in your heart. Well, God, why is that? Now, can you th- I can think of a number of reasons that, that that could be. But here's the reason God gives here. Because of the way I am. I'm going to come back to this later because I think sometimes we have a tendency to, and I, I really have felt this throughout this whole series and wanting to make sure that we didn't do this. Hopefully we don't do this as a church. But sometimes our relationship with God as Christians is so much, I don't know if I could put a percentage on it, but it's so much about us. And sometimes very little about God. That's why a series like this sort of catches us off guard almost. That we're just going to sit back and we're going we're to learn who God is. And it does have an effect on our lives, but we're going to learn who he is. And so sometimes we come to this and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not live like that or do that. Well, well, why not? And I'm almost shopping for a reason. Well, why not? Well, because it would be really bad for you if you do. Now, now, part of me, that's where we go. It is sort of us shopping for, well, why should I not do this? Um, how would this affect me if I kind of colored outside the lines? What's that about for me? God doesn't give a reason in us in his first response. And let me tell you, the Bible is filled with reasons for us. But in this first introduction, God does not give that as the primary motive. Here's why you should have no other gods before me. Because of the way I am. I'm a jealous God. That's why you don't have any other gods before me. Not just because they're false gods and if you worship, then you're really worshiping demons and you're following false ideas that will drag your life down, make your life empty, ruin you, and at the end face judgment, and you don't want to be in hell forever. Now, you know what? That's all about us, right? And that might motivate us, and that's, that's not a bad motivation, but that's not how God introduces this. This is almost a first date. Can you imagine I mean, actually, when we meet with couples, this is never what we encourage you to do on the first date. Tell the other person what they will think is the worst thing about you, right? God says, you don't get to have any other gods because I'm a jealous God. Welcome to Sinai, baby. (laughs) Glad to meet you. I'm the God who rescued you. Now, let me get one thing straight. I'm God, and there's no other God, and I am jealous. That's not a that doesn't sound like a good first date, does it? Can I can I kind of smooth things over? I don't like to ski. I'm into mountains. You know, uh, God, can you tell us something that we're going to really be enamored with? Uh, well, this is the first thing I need to tell you. You will have no other gods before me. Oh, why is that? Well, because I'm I'm a jealous God, and and you you won't like my response when I respond in my jealousy. But God says this because he's revealing something to us about himself in this, right? This word that's used, jealous, it needs a little clarifying because it's, it's, not, it's not the response of some teenage girl who's combing her hair, having a fit with her friends because uh, her boyfriend talked to someone else, right? This is, this is not God. This is, you know, remember, God is Kadash, right? So he's jealous in another league, from what we associate with jealousy. But here's the word 
in the Hebrew language is the word kana. It means in every instance of this word, it is used to describe the character of the Lord. He is a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of other gods. Now, and immediately, this, this God flies in the face of our culture. Because our culture, I mean, I cannot, I cannot read, and I tend to every week read the religion section in the newspaper, and, and you just get a front row seat for how dysfunctional the, the church world is and toleration. Right? And one of the major denominations is going through this big split. It was in the paper Saturday. Uh, because of issues where one group is being portrayed as intolerant of another group seeking to ordain homosexuals. And this group is intolerant of that. And it's almost as though Christianity today is being pushed into this category where toleration has to characterize who Christianity is. Listen, if we go back to the author of Christianity, we find out here that he doesn't tolerate certain things. God's just not okay with everything. It says this word is always used to describe God's attitude toward the worship of false gods, which arouses his jealousy and anger in judgment against the idol worshipers. So closely is this characteristic associated with God that it is his name. His name is jealous. Right? Brown Driver says this word is demanding exclusive service. See, so there's a realm in which God steps into a relationship with us and what he calls for is exclusivity. God's looking to be something in our life in the way in which we relate to him that only describes him. <clears throat> there's no one else, there's nothing else that we look to the way in which we look to God. God pronounces on our life a demand if I'm going to be God in your life, then I have exclusive rights to this territory of your heart. I will not share it with any other. I started the title of the message, the God, Meet the God Who Doesn't Share. Right? And don't, we, don't we impose these things? It's like, well, we, we tell our children to share. I mean, it's like God has to share. God has to share us. Listen, God colors way outside the lines. Remember, he's not in our league. Things that you and I are supposed to do, are wrong for God to do. It would be wrong for God to share us in the realm of worship and faith and trust and hope. It would be wrong for God to do that. He doesn't share us with anyone else that way. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 4 says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. Right? Take care lest you forget this covenant with God. Right? This covenant is like, and we'll see in a second, to a marriage covenant. It has fidelity in it. Therefore, it has adultery in it. It has exclusivity. There's realms of your relationship with your spouse that you don't share with anyone else. Now, you share other dimensions of your life with others, and it's right for us to do so in the world in which we live. But there's a dynamic in your marriage that you share 
an exclusivity that no one else goes there with you. And should anyone ever go there, the most horrendous offense to the other person has taken place. And you know, if, if, if you've walked with somebody who's been through an adulterous situation or you've been in that situation, there's probably not a worse hurt that's been experienced in that. And God uses the marriage covenant as a means of teaching us what kind of relationship we have with him. Deuteronomy 6, 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Why? For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. See, this relationship that we're in with God, it, it, it's a marriage relationship. It involves unique connections and dynamics and faithfulness to one another. It involves exclusivity. There's a realm in which we relate to God in a way that we are not called to relate to anyone else. We're not called to look to anyone else the way in which we look to God. We're not called to look to anything else the way in which we look to God. And to do so is infidelity. It's adulterous in the eyes of God. I think I put this in your outline. When we either forget God or we no longer look to him as the source, the source of our provision, the source of our happiness, the source of our future hope. And now listen, in some kind of a unique way, God has allowed us to come into relationship him, with him. It's, it's, you know, you go through this, Physically, as, as a person who grows up, comes of age, and then a huge issue in your life is, is to be married, to join your life to another person. And that's a huge, huge issue. For every person, that's a huge issue. No one escapes that. And then we join our life to that person as though that was the ultimate prize in life and we continue on in life. Well, in a way, God is the ultimate person for us to join our lives to. Spiritually, what our hearts want more than anything else is, is to find God. And the Bible calls that relationship we in, enter into a marriage. And we are looking to God now. We're looking to that relationship. We're seeking something from God. We're, we're seeking his provision for our lives. We're, we're seeking that something in God can make my soul be satisfied. God can make me happy. God can give me joy. The basis for me having hope as I sit in this building this morning is God. It's supposed to be, right? Now, if we did a quick blood test and drew out and checked, what's the levels of hope like right now in your heart? Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel joy? Or do, you, do you feel happy? You're married to God, for goodness sake, right? Now, from God's standpoint, what is this looking like? Because some of us are married to God, and, and we're, we look like we're in a miserable marriage. Right, you know what that looks like? When you get around somebody who's 
they're married. They go home to the same address. Another person lives there. But they're chronically complaining. They're not happy. To be around them is to be around somebody who's withdrawn. The grass is always greener. If I could just have, if my husband wasn't such a loser, we'd have blah, blah, blah in our life, and our life would look like this. Why can't you be like so-and-so? You know what? Look at him. He, he's in church. He's worshiping God. He's this, he's that. Now, always remember, ladies, you don't go home with that guy. So, you know, this is a two-hour act that most folks can pull off. But there's a reality that when that guy goes home, he takes off his Superman outfit, and he lays on the couch and does stuff too. But that's, that was free. Um, here's, here's the real issue, though. Some of us have married God and then kept shopping. It's like, yeah, I'm married to God, but I'm not happy. You see, because I don't have this. And you know what? I'm so sick and tired of repairing that stinking same old car. How come other people get to, uh, There's some of us that get more joy out of the new iPod release. The, the latest uh, Apple phone is coming out. And man, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, hope has entered my world. You know, I'm, I'm online, I'm looking at it. Look what it does. You touch it, and, and, and look, what it, look at this. And we're excited because we're going to be getting it. We're going to stand in line. We're going to be the first one to get that thing. All of a sudden, this breath of hope that wasn't there last week while we were married to God. Oh, but thank God the new phone's coming out. I'm going to get a new car. We're getting a new house. All the while, we're married to God, and God, you're just not enough. You understand, don't you, God? It's not enough that I'm married to you. I'm not happy. See, God sees this as a marriage, and there's exclusive ground. God is not interested in sharing the source of your happiness and meaning in life and hope and joy for the future with anything or anyone else. Listen, because this is where this is very uncomfortable. And if you are looking to something else besides God, you are committing adultery. That's how God feels about this. You know, if we could just imagine our own God, then we wouldn't imagine a jealous God. We'd imagine a God who'd be okay with us having an affair or two or three. We'd imagine a God who somehow, well, you know, we'd have reason to do it. We could go into the Bible and we could take God's love. Keith, you did three weeks on the love of God. Certainly the love of God would just make God not jealous, right? He's not jealous. He's all right with that because he's love. I mean, you had to take three times longer on that one than you did on jealousy. So he must be three times greater in love than he is in jealousy. So he's all right. Well, if we're imagining a God, then sure, you can, you can pull out of there the categories you don't like. But we don't get to imagine a God. He is who he is. And he's jealous. So there's, there's effect, there's affection in God in this marriage covenant. That word also means the verb expresses a very strong emotion. 
whereby some quality or possession of the object is desired by the subject. You start getting a sense as to why is God jealous. The term may be, in a favorable sense, to denote consuming zeal focused on one that is loved. Why, why is God jealous? Because of the intensity of his love. Jealous is a, is a hot word. It's a word with heat. It's Tabasco, baby. You don't, you don't read about jealousy in the Bible when it pertains to God without some description of heat. <laughs> it's because the love of God is red hot as well. See, God loves the objects that he has set his affection on with such intensity that for there to be non-exclusivity awakens jealousy in him that accompanies this great love. John Frame says, so jealousy is an attribute of God, a description of the divine nature. By nature, he deserves and demands exclusive worship and allegiance. In the Bible's emphasis on God's jealousy, we see that there is a profound analogy between God's covenant and the marriage relationship. Idolatry is like adultery. From this discussion, we can see that God's jealousy is not inconsistent with his love or goodness. On the contrary, his jealousy is one aspect of his love. Okay, listen, if, if, if there's anything after 11 weeks, and, and if there's 11 more to this, I don't know, um, that we walk away with. Can we walk away with not filling in the blank? God is with two things. Can we just do that? Can we not just take our kindergarten level of the knowledge of God and apply, it's like, well, all, all I know is God is love. That's all I know, Keith. You know, so when you stand up and preach these kind of messages, it just kind of fritzes me out. Okay, listen, nice to meet you. I'm God. Let me just get this straight first. I'm the only God in your life. Nobody else stands on that holy ground. And here's why. Because I'm jealous. Right, before God introduces himself as Abba, Father, which he is later on. Right, this is going to come as a revelation later on. And, and, and listen, I'll be honest with you because I know I'll come off sounding like Joe Hard guy when I preach you a message on jealousy and holiness. Ah, keeps it so hard. Listen, I don't get up every day and go, God, today jealousy is on my mind. Right, listen, I get up every day reveling in the fact that God is my father and rejoicing in the fact that he loves me the way in which he loved David that we talked about so that when I screw up in the same uh, ways that my life will bring reproach on the name of God, God in his love finds a way to stay in covenant relationship with me and bless me. Okay, but what I don't have permission to do, and no one does, is to turn off God's jealousy and say, you know what, I like those categories, so I wake up every day and I think about those. The Bible thrusts this one into our face because it must be something that's worth worshiping God about. Okay, can we not do this? Can we not say, because you'd never say this, well, maybe you would, but you shouldn't. You know, my wife, she is so beautiful. Uh, man, I mean, just the most gorgeous woman in the world, but ex ex except for her right eye, you know, oh, you know, when you, uh, when you look, oh, uh, you look at it, it's kind of like, uh, I, I have to keep from throwing up. I mean, it's just this, 
thing that, you know, so I just, you know, I either imagine her wearing an eye patch or just, you know, ask her to look so I can just get a profile on the left side. Uh, I, my wife would love that, right? She'd just be thrilled with, with that. Listen, you don't get to come to God and say, oh, God, we worship you. You are amazing in your love and in your mercy and in your compassion. God, wonderful. Oh, you know, that jealous, ooh, that jealous thing. Oh, yeah, I just want to throw up and I get, get around God's jealousy. Is that any less who God is? Well, I just don't understand it. Okay, well, be careful that you don't start editing God simply because you and I don't understand enough about him. You know, I might get into heaven. And see something about the jealousy of God when this lens that we're wearing and the, the limitations of this physical body fall off of us. And we look upon that and we are blown away and celebrate and dance for joy. But whether or not that day is understood by us, the Bible teaches us God is this. And we do not have permission to edit him. Right? So we're going to meet God who is jealous, and he's going to be introduced to us by a man named Moses today. So turn to Numbers 25. Moses gives us front row seats to this God who is jealous. Moses brings this explanation to the people in Exodus. But if one were to read from the journal of Moses, I wonder what this day would have sounded like in Moses' life. It was the day when he was leading the people, right? He's, he's 40 years removed from Mount Sinai now. It's about 40 years later. They're about to go into the promised land. And there's an issue that breaks out amongst the people of idol worship. And God's jealousy is aroused. And God tells Moses to go and kill God's own people. God orders Moses, Moses, go and kill these people. I wonder what that sounded like in his journal of days of difficulty as a leader. It's one thing to fight your enemies. It's another thing to go kill your own. But God has told him to do this. Ronald Allen says, we have trouble at times coming to grips with the commands of Scripture for Israel to kill her enemies. This chapter is harder for us to face, it is the command to kill some of their own people. And quite honestly, it's not the first time it's happened. Forty years earlier, foot of Mount Sinai, they make a golden calf. And anytime worship is, right, this is, worship is holy ground for God. Worship is marriage ground for God. Worship and looking to something to be to us, our future and our hope, right? Remember when they did the golden calf? Let him go before us. We're going to put our hope in that thing. When you do that, you awaken the jealousy of God because that thing now sits on God's ground, marriage ground with God. And God told Moses then, run throughout the land with your swords and kill those who have bowed down to this golden calf. And 3,000 died that day. 15,000 died in the rebellion of Korah. 24,000 are going to die in this story. Right? Let's read Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. 
So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Baal was a fertility god, the Canaanites. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them. That word actually there means to impale them in the sun before the Lord. That the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. These Midianite women were temple prostitutes. Illicit sex was taking place as a form of worship to Baal. And while Moses is facing the death sentence for many of the people, And while there is weeping going on, this man walks through the camp with this woman. While they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel And the woman threw her belly. And you get the visual here, obviously, what they were doing. That one thrust of a spear killed them both. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So God responds here. Let me just walk quickly through this story so we can learn from it. The people of Israel are on their way into the promised land and they meet a people. They meet a people who look like I mean, there's some salesmanship going on here. Something's going to be said and done, and these men are going to join themselves in sexual immorality with these temple prostitutes as part of worshiping Baal. So there is, there's pleasure, but there's also promise. There's pleasure and promise in this story. They get seduced by pleasure and promise because Baal was a fertility god. So it just conveniently happens that there involves some pleasure in honoring this fertility God personally. But he's a fertility God, so therefore he blesses stuff. He's the source of crops growing and your flocks reproducing and abundance for you. So here's what's at the heart. This, this is probably, you know, if they came into the, the new land there and turned the TVs on in their hotel rooms, they got the latest advertisement of what Baal can do. And they were attracted by it. They saw pleasure and they saw promise. Now, let me ask you this because what they, what they saw was what they should have been getting from God. There should have been pleasure in God and there should have been promises in God that would have guarded them from this idolatry. But there was not. 
their hearts were vulnerable and they were deceived and they embraced the pleasure and the promise of Baal. Secondly, God is jealous for the exclusivity he rightly deserves. Two things happen here. One, God's anger is kindled. Now, I want to highlight the fact that there's two things in this. There's a penalty that's going to come upon them. The death penalty is going to come upon them. But the Bible doesn't just say that there was a death penalty. The Bible says the anger of God was kindled. So there's a revelation of emotion, if you will, in God. You know, God's not, God, God's not a, a meter reader, right? You ever see somebody who writes parking tickets downtown? Unless you get a really bizarre one, they're just real bland, you know, unaffected. They're just writing you a ticket for goodness sake. They're not offended, you know, stick it on your dash. Go to the next one. Stick it on there. Go to the next one. Okay, this is not God. God is not just saying, a law of the kingdom has been broken. Please issue a ticket. I mean, God is affected here. It says the anger of God was kindled. There's a passion in God that's revealed here. And the death penalty is invoked. But I, I want to highlight something here. And this is one of those things that you're only going to get if you chew on verses like this. God's character is revealed here. In a, in a variety of ways, because remember, we've already seen God's character is multiple facets. God's character is revealed in that there is a death penalty and 24,000 people are going to die. Listen, today, I don't understand how people can read the Bible and walk away thinking God would never send anybody to hell. God doesn't judge. God doesn't, God doesn't, God doesn't. Okay, come on. Can we just be honest here? God put a hit out on 24,000 people in this day. Because he was angry. Now, whether I like that or not, it's in the Bible. And God is explaining himself to us from Scripture. So the, the holy character of God is being revealed in his judgment and justice. But it's also being revealed in this moment in his mercy and compassion. How is that? Well, one, the fact that it stops anywhere at all and doesn't wipe them all out, that's, that's mercy. But secondly, how many events like this can you find in the Bible? You can find a few. I just mentioned a few. But in the history of God's people, don't you think there should be more like this? Come on, be honest. These people were scoundrels. They constantly wandered in and out of the will of God. They constantly went after false gods. But yet, you know, Peter spoke last week. How many floods were there? Why? Because there was only one opportunity in all of the history of man for one flood? You don't think God could have wiped everybody out more than one time? But he only did it once, and then he had mercy and was long-suffering. How many Sodom and Gomorrahs are there? Right? Nineveh flirts with it, but God has mercy on them. They repent. But what about all the other cities? that were heathen cities that celebrated sin and didn't honor God. Do we honestly think Sodom and Gomorrah was the only one? No, there's probably many, many more instances just like this where God could have pulled the trigger. And yet he doesn't. That's mercy. That's compassion. That's the God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's the revelation of God's love. But, you know, when I read this story, though, the word choices are particular. 
And in this story, the gospel is revealed. Now, you'd be wise to do this. If you could actually take a piece of thread and put a knot in it in Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, and then poke a hole in every page and sew it through the Bible. Every page. Poke a hole in every page and sew a thread called the gospel on every page to where every time you open the Bible up, you would see that thread and you'd know the gospel's on this page. The gospel's on this page. This book is about the gospel. Now, in this story, God's righteous fury is going to respond and the guilty are going to be publicly impaled and pierced. Publicly impaled for all to see, and then Phineas is going to pierce through. And, and the Bible says as a result of that, the fierce anger, it's a good word for the wrath of God, the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away. So there's going to be a public impaling and piercing, and the fierce anger of the Lord is going to turn away. All right, now you've read the rest of the Bible. Does that make you think of anything? Now on this day... The guilty faced the impaling and the piercing. But there was coming a day when one who would be totally innocent would face the public impaling on a cross and being pierced for our iniquities. You see the gospel in this story? This gospel is in this passage where God is looking for the day when I will turn away my fierce anger because I'm going to punish my own son for your sin. And you will never know the fierce anger of God because it's going to be poured out on my son in your place. Listen, all of us could have been in this story publicly impaled and run through for our own sin. But yet God in his mercy through his son has delivered us from his own wrath. quote here by the B.T. <laughs> this is why you speak in tongues, so you can say words like <laughs> is that how I say it? Anibwile. Uh, this is what he says here, because this, do you guys feel like 24,000 people have died? God has impaled leaders for the whole world to see. Does this, does this seem a little extreme, like God's a little over the top right here? Come on, man, God, what are you, what are you doing? He said, now listen, I can take God responding that way when I read and I understand a little bit about what, what pagan worship involved, the gross immorality, and especially when we get to, to, to the Molech-type gods where there was child sacrifice involved. They were sacrificing children for God's sake. Now if God breaks out and kills 24,000, I'm almost all right with that. Bitti says, when we get down to verse 9, we learn that God had killed 24,000 Israelites by plague. Do you think, well, that's an overreaction? Or do you say, yes, vindicate your name, O God? Do you side with the sinners in their sin or with God in his holiness? Thanks to the corrupting nature of sin, our loyalty has been away from the God who made us and owns us to form a pact of loyalty with the sinner and with our sin. Listen, we're thinking this is, this is over the top. This is, this is an overreaction. 
But we, we have to remember something here. Before we get to thou shalt not murder, which, you know, taking innocent children and killing them for the sake of child sacrifice, you shall not commit adultery, which is what was going on with these men, with these temple prostitutes. Before we get there, God's already covered this ground. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me because I am a jealous God. Listen, before we take up the commandments that come later, God has first covered the most critical ground. And and whether you and I are uncomfortable with this, there's a realm in which God being who he is, God is right to do what he has done. And I may have a hard time with that because I'm, I'm I'm in this quote. I am more in allegiance with the people than I am in allegiance with God. And so I'm thinking, God, how could you respond like that, God? How could you do that? Because my allegiance is amongst sinful men and not amongst a holy God who responds this way. Right now, here's a, here's a challenge for us, and I want it to be a challenge as we think through where we've come to get to this point. Question, how do we factor this into our definition of God? What do we do with this? What, was, was this before God was saved? Right? Don't, don't we almost treat God like he got saved with the, at the cross as well? <laughs> you know, the cross came and, you know, it just saved God from all that jealousy. Okay, remember, I am the Lord God. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change, right? The cross doesn't change the character of God. It reveals the character of God, and it changes how he relates to us. The cross didn't cure God of jealousy because God was never wrong for being jealous. And remember, God introduces himself as I am jealous. There's no cure for what you are when you're God. And God is not imperfect. It's not as though God was awaiting the cross so he could stop being jealous. God is jealous. That's the way he is. He's still jealous. I think I wrote this out in your outline. I am concerned that we live in a time when it is common to hear people claim a relationship with God. While we have very little actual knowledge of who God is and what he is like. You have a relationship? I have a relationship with God. The God who's jealous? What are you talking about? No, I don't. I don't, I don't know what you mean by that. Well, well, that's who he is. He is jealous. So we end up creating a life that's unaffected by who God is because we don't know who God is. There's aspects of God that we don't know anything about, and those aspects don't touch our lives. So we live these uninformed lives. We live, we live Christianity under the canopy of vague notions about God. When God has revealed himself in the word, but we have these vague notions about God, and yet we say we're in relationship with God, and that God then, who's not really well known to us, doesn't affect the way in which we live our lives. Listen, this is not just true in the category of jealousy. If I have vague notions about the power of God, if I have vague notions about the faithfulness of God, what Matt was helping us pray through at the end of the worship time, 
of the, the gloriousness of God and the effect that that has upon you as you're wrestling and struggling through issues maybe pertaining to your children. If you have vague notions about the faithfulness of God, well, then your walk in that category will be unaffected. You will, you will sit under the weight of waywardness in your children's lives because I don't know God to be great in that way. I don't know of God's faithfulness I don't know of God's love that can bless me when I don't deserve to be blessed. Right? Because if all of us take our successes and failures and our coins from being parents and bring them to the vending machine, we'd be very aware that many of us have days where we were bankrupt, where we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing. Matter of fact, we were doing what we weren't supposed to be doing and we're hoping our kids aren't scarred for life. Right? And so then we're back into a corner of, well, can God do anything? Can God rescue my child? I mean, after all I've done, after all this happened, after all the breakdown in our relationship, can anything good come from this? And if in that moment you have vague notions of the love and faithfulness of God, well, then your walk will be affected. And it's true as well to have vague notions of the jealousy of God, then your walk will will be affected. Right, Tozer says the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What do you believe God is like? How is that affecting you? Why is this story here? Why do we have Numbers 25? It's a graphic story. It's one of those things that makes you wonder, should I let my children watch that movie? I don't know. You let them read the Bible? (laughs) There's a lot of scenes in the Bible that are worse. Okay, here's a bunch of people whoring around, and then 24,000 are being killed and slaughtered and impaled. I mean, actually, the graphic imagery of them being hung, it's, it's it's really pretty nasty. It's like they were almost dismembered and hung out to dry in the public. It was, it was the kind of thing that would capture your attention if you walked by and impaled was this man dead for all to see. That's kind of what you bump into there. Why, God, why do you write this story down? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers... We're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, this is, this is the exodus. This is them coming out of Egypt, going through the sea, right? So we're, we're talking about the, the generation here in Numbers. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless... With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
Now, why this says 23 and the other says 24 is a variety of opinions on that. But this passage is speaking of Numbers 25. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Lord, why is Numbers 25 in Scripture? So that we might desire to do differently than they desired to do. So that we might be given a motivator in what we do. Now remember, this whole story takes place back in Numbers because God is a jealous God. He explains himself clearly. The reason why these events have occurred is because of God's jealousy. Now when you and I bump into life and we bump into making decisions and we're walking our way through life, I'm afraid that that's maybe not something that affects us. We have an opportunity to pursue some form of pleasure that we're going to put our hope in, but it's sinful pleasure. It's going to disrupt the pleasure we should have been getting from God. Why or why not pursue that? Maybe most of us would think through, well, it's going to sin costs something. Sin has consequences, and it does. You know, you could end up pregnant or, or somebody could find out and then what would happen about this or you could lose your job. You lied about that. You know, all these things and we can find reasons for us to avoid some consequence of sin. Now listen, that's not a bad reason. Let's not do away with that reason by what I'm about to say. But when God says you shall have no other gods before me, the reason he gives is because he is jealous. And he is still jealous. The cross didn't stop God from being a jealous God. The cross exists because he's a jealous God. So jealous for us in the the zeal that he has for us that he didn't spare his own son that he might have us. That's That's a possessiveness of God. God is very possessive. So where it may be wrong for you and I to be controlling and possessive and all those kind of things, for God, it's right. Right, You've never been a more controlling being in all the universe than God. Right, But it's wrong for you to be controlling. You you understand the difference, right? You're not supposed to control things, but it's right for God to control things. He's possessive. He's exclusive. He made us for himself, and he refuses to share. Now, don't use that the wrong way on your children. It'll create a mess in your home if you try to get your children to imitate God in that category. <laughs> Listen, Paul, Paul launched believers into a walk that he called a walk worthy of the Lord. So the manner of our walk, the way in which we walk through life is affected by how we process this. Now, here's where I want to finish. Is your walk with God informed by the fact that he is a jealous God still? He is still a jealous God. Do you you remember this passage in James chapter 4? Can you remember its context before I, I get to reading it? 
James chapter 4 begins with, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You want, you do not have, you lust, you desire something, you can't get it, so you commit murder. All right, so we just got introduced to relational dynamics, right? We got, we got problems going on face-to-face with people in our lives. And then God transitions here, and he goes into the heart of, you want to know why you got problems this way? Here's why you got problems this way, because you got a problem this way. Don't ever think, don't ever think that my problem only exists this way. When you start having problems this way, now listen, the Bible does say, in as much as possible, be at peace with all men. So it's possible for you to be right in your heart and not be at peace with somebody else. That's possible. But when you are in the heat of the conflict and there's quarrels and fights going on between you and another person and you want and there's passion and there's problems and you refuse and you're having a hard time with and all that stuff, do not, do not divorce yourself from the idea that you have a problem going on this way right now. You want something so bad that it's become idolatrous in your heart. And you'll kill to have it. But before you kill that person, you've already committed adultery on God. You've already let something come into your life that's become more important to you than God himself. And that's why you deal with that person the way you are. Listen to this passage, James 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Still, the same God who was God in Numbers 25 is still God today. And he jealously yearns for his spirit to take up its place in us in a way that nothing else goes into that territory. That's holy ground. It belongs to him alone. And he still uses the same language. If you let something into that category, it's adultery. You adulterous people. Now, listen, how many of us, do you realize how that verse got us there? It started with the problem that we'd love to hear a message about this morning. Conflict resolution. How to get along with people. I could have preached a message on how to get along with people. And we could have started with James chapter 4. But when God deals with problems this way, he, he moves the camera and says, you know why you got problems this way? Because you got problems this way. Because you've let something into holy ground. You've desired something. And you were married to me. And yet I wasn't enough for you. I wasn't the source for you. I wasn't the place of hope for you. You put your hope in that and you're afraid that person's going to get that. And so you're slandering them. And you're tearing them down. And you're murdering them. You're committing adultery on me. Because that thing's never going to be your life. I'm your life. I'm your husband. Do you get the picture here of a God who's made to sit like a husband who's being cheated on by a wife who's miserable constantly because she can't have this, can't have that, and wants to go off and shop and has eyes for that one over there and gets on the phone with that one over there? Well, God sits in the corner having the message sent, you, you, you don't satisfy me anymore. That, that's, that's the realm of jealousy. In God. Now, where do we go with this? 
Now listen, we're, we're in a series that's got 11 parts to it. Let me tell you where not to go with it. Can we, can we go back and hold on to all we learned about David? Right? Remember David? Remember how God dealt with David? Do you remember God's attitude? Right? So I'm a Christian. I'm married to God. What, what, if, what if I start pursuing idolatry? Am I going to face the fierce anger of God in my life? No. And you remember why? Because that, that cup has already been poured out completely. It's not as though God was not a jealous God, right? God did not be jealous over our waywardness. God was fully jealous over my waywardness. And he took that jealousy and he directed that towards his son. And the fierce anger of God was turned away because he was impaled and pierced in my place. So I was spared. So even as a child of God today, you can commit adultery on God. But you're not going to face the fierce anger of God as a result of it. But the jealousy of God is still in God. God is still fighting for that territory. God still wants that place that nothing else but him was ever supposed to have. And God is intolerant of anything else having it. God will step into your life. He will bring correction. He will bring instruction. He will bring discipline into our life. None of those things are punishment because you and I can't pay for our adultery. Only Christ could do that. You know what he could do? He could be patient. Ever wonder why you've been wayward for so long and nothing terrible ever happened to me? Because you're experiencing the character of God. He's long-suffering. He's patient. Even compassionate. Well, I've even been blessed. Yeah, David was blessed, remember? David beat one bad dude after another. David was on a winning streak. Nobody could beat him. He was still winning, and his armies were still winning while he was at home committing adultery. How can that happen? Well, it can happen the same way you and I are going to inherit in eternity with God when we never deserved it. You realize God showed up in our lives when we were adulterous and called us to himself. He didn't wait for us to get it together. So if God interrupts your adultery with blessing, don't act like God's condoning the adultery. It's just that God will do what God will do. Well, then, if I can get off, maybe God will even bless me. Is that what you're saying, Keith? Maybe God will even bless me. All right, you know what I just did? I just cornered you with the only thing that I can touch in you as a motive is you. If you're not going to get hung by this, if you're not going to get impaled by this, hey, I'll work this deal. I'm, I'm good to stay in it. That's not the main reason God says. And listen, God calls the people to himself because of his love for you. Does that matter to you? Does it matter when God brings you to himself to give you the ultimate prize of eternity? Himself. And he says, I'm a jealous God. I won't share you with anyone else. Don't look to anyone else. Don't put your hope in anything else. Don't trust and put faith in anything else. 
Don't hope for joy in your life based on anything else. Look to me. Now this morning, if you're here and you're aware, I'm I'm not looking to God that way. I'm just not. I'm waiting for this to happen. I'm hoping this will change. Better job if we can just turn the corner financially. And And I've been unhappy. I've been an unhappy Christian. Listen, if you're an unhappy Christian, it's probably because you're not looking to God. Your eyes are over there somewhere, longing for something else beside God. This morning, listen, this morning, can you return to God? Can you be compelled by the God who is jealous for you to turn from whatever it is you've put your hope in and take that hope and say, God, this was yours. I'm wearing the ring, God. I told you. You'd be the one that I would look to, that my life was in you, Lord, that I trusted you and you alone. God, this morning, I'm, I'm turning away from God. I'm repenting from my adultery. And I've gone after other gods. I've gone after something else besides you, and you have become inadequate. God, I'm turning back to you this morning. Listen, if there's anything, anything that I hope this series accomplishes for us, it's to bring us back to worship God. It's to all of our lives. Can we just come back to God? Him alone, God. Let's stand up together. Lord, right now, help our hearts to be honest with you, Lord. Lord, if this were a marriage conversation, and even though you know everything, you were to ask us, sitting across the table looking into our eyes. And you asked us, are you happy with me? joy in your life because you're married to me? We don't want to be a people who live our lives like we're in a bad marriage. Grumpy, 
critical, unhappy. Because we can't get the other things in our lives to do what we wanted them to do or be what we've hoped they would be. Lord, this morning, give us grace. Motivate our hearts by the sheer fact that you are a jealous God. A God who demands and deserves exclusivity. This morning, give us an eagerness to return to our first love. Lord, to have nothing that could compare to the joy that we have in you. To look to you, God. You are the source of our lives. You are our provision. My hope is in you, Lord joy in you, Lord. Days of happiness and pleasure are at your right hand forevermore, Lord, in your presence. Yet there's fullness of joy. Oh, Lord, thank you for your mercy that brings us to this place, Lord, to hear to hear the condition of our lives, a condition that once caused a plague to break out amongst your people, a condition that caused folks to be impaled, Lord, a condition that caused your son to be pierced in our place. And today, Lord, we have the privilege of responding and returning to you. Lord, I pray for each person here today who is living an unhappy married life to you. Lord, that today would be a new day. God, today we would realize we have turned from you, Lord. We are no longer looking to you. God, the territory that was to be yours and yours alone, we have allowed others to invade it. Lord, today, by your grace, we turn once again to you, Lord. Invade the places of our hearts, Lord. Capture the ground that is yours. Lord, be to us first love and joy and passion in our heart. God, occupy the territory that you and you alone rightly deserve. Lord, you deserve all of our allegiance. You deserve that in the darkest hour we would turn to you and say, yet will I hope in you, God. My joy, my glory, my crown, my deliver, my hope. God, as we sing and close, Lord, let this fertile ground be exposed, Lord, for days and days to come. That not merely in a moment in a service were we affected, but God, we would sit down as though we had just come from marriage counseling and realized how we have been wronging the one that we love. And we 
would find daily joy in turning afresh to you, granting you ground that has always been meant for you and you alone. Thank you.